before God's Word. My name is Paul Buckley, and one of the pastors here. Get to bring God's Word on most Sundays, and so welcome. Welcome to everybody who's with us online. We are in a series in Ecclesiastes, so this is the second message in our series. We'll be going through this book until June. Um, you'll have some breaks here and there, but... Um, so you can be turning to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. At the end of the chapter, we'll start with verse 14. While you're turning there... Oh, by the way, yeah, the, uh, the books are here. So if you're with us in person, um, complimentary books, uh, illuminated journals they're called. That's for you to use, to take notes in, and Lord willing, to keep for a lifetime. And as we go through different books of the Bible, to, um, to basically have those on your bookshelf and create a collection with your sermon notes. So there's space for notes... If you're an artist, I know for some people, uh, creating little doodles can help them remember the content as well. So use those for your uh, edification. Those are a gift from the church to you. So we're chapter 1, and then we'll go into chapter 2. While you're turning there in your journal or in your Bible, um, let me ask you, have you ever heard of Murphy's Law? Who here has heard of Murphy's Law? I'm sure most of us. Um, and it, Murphy's Law basically, actually it's interesting, I it looks like it came out from engineering work at Wright-Patterson Air Force, Force Base. There was a man named Murphy who originated the, 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 the definition, though it had been around for a while before that. But anyhow, Murphy's Law says this, if anything can go wrong, it will go wrong. Um, so have you ever experienced Murphy's Law? Yes, I, I, I have. Um, it seems for me, actually, whenever I do a project around the house, Murphy's Law kicks in, and, and just so you know, I'm relatively handy. I was a mechanical engineer undergrad, and before I was a pastor, I was an engineer, so it's not that I don't know how to do stuff around the house, but I find every time there's a project, Murphy's Law kicks in, and as nice as it is to have all those do-it-yourself videos on YouTube, it almost never takes the amount of time they say. There's always something that happens that's not in the video uh, that that changes things. Uh, for example, last year, I decided to change my own oil. Now, I've been changing my oil, had been changing my oil for years. I know how to do it. Uh, I decided to do it, change my own oil on my Ford Explorer. I don't know what I was thinking because it's actually just as expensive for me to do it as for me to bring it somewhere, but for some reason, I chose to do it. I didn't need to watch a video on this one. And so I did everything right. I, you know, I warmed up the engine. Um, I went through the, the different, I turned off the engine. Um, I had my tools, I had my oil, I had my drain pan, I had my new filter, I had the car up, uh, the front end up on wheel ramps, I had the back wheels chalked, um, I opened the oil cover, I then unscrewed the drain plug to drain it into the pan, let the oil out, uh, got up there, took, after the oil was out, took the filter off, put a new filter on, and then I thought, I'll do an upgrade on my oil, I'm going to put synthetic oil in, just because it lasts longer, and it's supposed to run a little better, so I, I figured I'd do that upgrade, and and so then I, you know, did everything else you're supposed to do, right? You close the, the oil plug first, um, and then you add the oil, and then put the top on and all that, took it off the blocks, and then, uh, so did all that stuff, and then I went to start it, and it had trouble starting. It had been running perfectly fine before. I was like, well, what's going on with this? And, and, and I thought, I'd, well, I'll just give it time. Maybe there's something that in the computer has to reset itself. I don't know. Uh, well, it went on to continue to have trouble, and it was actually stalling. Uh, it would stall, you know, driving around, stall out. And I'm like, what's going on? What could happen in changing your oil to make your car stall? And so I started, I Googled uh, for it, and I could find no answers. And, 
And I thought, well, maybe it's the oil temperature sensor. Maybe there's something that went when you know, I took the oil out, new oil in. And I actually, first I, I drained the oil again and then added new oil, I think, all over again, thinking that was it, putting regular oil in. I thought maybe it's synthetic. Then I bought a new oil sensor uh, and, and nothing worked. And I went to my neighbor, who's a mechanical type, works on cars, is very good actually, and was just talking about it. And, and he said, well, there is a problem with those Fords. They, the airflow sensors tend to go on them. And I was like, but that has nothing to do with the oil. It's a totally different part of the car, the airflow sensor. But, but he's like, well, there's sometimes a problem. So I was like, okay. I figured I'd just go for it. So I went out and got a new airflow sensor, which is just a little, little tiny thing that goes right where the air filter is. A very simple fix. Took the air filter cap off, put the new sensor in, connected it, and voila, the car ran great. It actually ran better than it ever did before. I have no idea how the airflow sensor is connected to me changing the oil, but that is uh, an illustration of Murphy's Law, actually an illustration of my work on my car, because that often happens. Now, why do I tell you that story? Uh, well, our passage today, actually, is going to teach us about this reality that often in this world, it feels like anything that can go wrong does go wrong. That we live in this reality, in this fallen world of frustration. We are frustrated. The, the results don't happen as we would like them to happen. This is a reality in this world. We're going to take a look at this in this passage. And this is here for us, so we won't be surprised by this reality of uncertainty in this fallen world. And then also in this, that we might put our hope in God. That's really the core of the message of this passage today. So let's pray and ask God to teach us about this truth, to lead us in it, and to glorify His name. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this book, which is so different than many of the other books that we've studied, but this is Your Word. And Lord, we need to hear the message of this book. We need You to instruct us and to adjust us and to teach and train us and to equip us, Lord, because the message of this book is so relevant for our culture. They need to hear these truths and, and also experience the reality that in uncertainty we can put our hope in what is certain in You. So help me, Lord, to teach and proclaim Your Word. Help us to hear it. I pray for each one listening here and, and online, Lord. I pray that they would hear from You. Spirit of God, You would speak and Your Word would come into hearts and minds and illumine things and reveal Yourself and Your ways. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians 1, starting actually in verse 12 and then following. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. For in much wisdom is much vexation. 
And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart, heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So I turned to consider wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man who, uh, what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise, as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life. Because what is done under the sun was grievous to me. For all is vanity and a striving after the wind. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled. And use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This 
also is vanity. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give it to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. God's word from Ecclesiastes 1 and 2. I want to dig in here and I want to say a few things. I want to examine what the preacher teaches us about uncertainty. First, we'll look at the uncertainty in seeking wisdom or folly. Then we'll look at the uncertainty in accomplishments and possessions. And then we'll look at certainty amidst uncertainty. So those three main points all in this learning that we ought to be certain of uncertainty, but hope in God. So first, uncertainty in seeking wisdom. The preacher tells us that he's applied his heart to seek and search out wisdom. He gives his conclusion right up front, reiterates it throughout the passage and throughout the book. You hear it again and again. Things are vanity. We learned about that word, which, which is not quite captured by the English word vanity, but the idea of elusive, uncertain. A vapor, literally is, a vapor, a breath. And so that's his refrain, it's vanity, it's a chasing after the wind. You're chasing that vapor, you're chasing that breath, you'll never get it, you'll never be able to hold it. It will never remain over the long haul. And so he says in verse 13 that it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. It's a vanity, a chasing after the wind. He calls that the business that God has given us. That, that word business and its cognates, the related words, are used throughout this passage. He uses words like work or task or toil. And he says that this toiling, this business, this assignment that God has given us in, in this fallen world is an unhappy business. There's frustration, right? That's what he's saying. It, I, I worked and I toiled and it did not produce what I thought it might. This business that I had been given, this toil, was accompanied by frustration. Where else in the Bible are you promised frustration with your toil? Genesis chapter 3, right? Genesis chapter 3. So Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Um, this is the, the curse that is given as a result of the sin of Adam and Eve. They bring a curse on themselves. They bring a curse on all of creation because they are the head under the Lord of creation. They're placed to image God. And so when they fall, they, they bring creation with it in falling. And so there's a curse that comes. And it says in verse 17, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam and his descendants are promised frustration amidst toil. 
There are many, many strong connections in Ecclesiastes with Genesis. In many ways, Ecclesiastes can be understood as a commentary on the reality of Genesis 3. Helping us be aware and be be frank and, and honest and raw in admitting that we live in a cursed world. Things are not as they ought to be. We toil and find the curse at work. We change our oil and the car stop, stops working. We try things. We work hard. And things don't go as we hope they would. We are grasping at vapors at times. As we go through the series, we'll see many connections with Genesis. But one other important one that I discovered this week is this word, Hebel. We in English say H-E-B-E-L, or it's the B is in Hebrew is uh, often pronounced with a V sound, Hevel. And there's another use of this word Hevel early on in Genesis. If you change the pronunciation a little bit, I'm not quite sure how we got here, but you say Hevel, and then drop the H, Ebel, and then you change the E sound a little bit, Abel. You get the name of the righteous son of Adam and Eve. They are exactly the same word. They're not two different versions of a word. They're exactly the same word. Exactly. So what was the preacher thinking? To keep on saying Abel, Abel, Abel. All is Abel. Abel of Abel. All is Abel. What's the connection there? Well, What happened to Abel? He was righteous, right? He was good. He did everything right. He was sincere in his righteousness before the Lord. He offered sacrifices that were pleasing because he lived by faith. And he wanted to give himself wholly. He wasn't begrudging like Cain, somehow trying to work the system. He was sincere. He did it right. He trusted God. And what happened to him? What did he get for all that? Death. He was killed by his brother. Hevel, vapor, uncertainty. This book is important for us to to understand and to qualify the other promises we see. Because you might say, like, well, you know, I've read Psalm 1 and the other wisdom literature. Psalm 1, right, says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, or stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seats of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Didn't work too well for Abel. And so Ecclesiastes comes alongside and helps us face this reality that there is often the reality that the person who does all these things in Psalm 1 does not abide. Suffers. Dies an early death. Her business doesn't prosper. His health doesn't remain. This is the reality that comes alongside these wonderful principles we see in Scripture. So this doesn't invalidate Psalm 1, by the way, because that is a principle that tends to be true, but not always. 
All Himself, right? Romans 8. Remember Romans 8 as we go through Ecclesiastes. Creation is subject to futility. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Sometimes Abel gets killed. And yet, there's a greater certainty that we'll camp on. We'll get there as we go through this message. So these connections are helpful for us. And and the preacher wants us to see these things. to, To see and understand and to live wisely. This is about wisdom, right? This is about living wisely. Considering this reality of the hevel, of the, of the able-like possibilities that are there for us. Well, he's teaching, he's explaining his own experience to teach us, and so he continues to tell us that he is searching after wisdom, and he searches out folly as well. He wants to look at wisdom, he wants to look at folly, and see what he can learn, and see if there's something that is certain in this uncertain world. And so in verse 17 of chapter 1, I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Chapter 2, verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. So he investigates. Is there something certain? Is there some ground to stand on in wisdom? If I am wise and apply the principles of Proverbs and and good human common sense wisdom, if I live out my life in that, can I find some solid ground? Or maybe I can just try folly, pursuing pleasure, and find something to stand on. Find some lasting value and satisfaction. But he doesn't find it there. Wisdom, the sort of wisdom, the important common sense Human wisdom we see in the wisdom literature does not provide solace. does not ultimately guarantee an answer. He found that the more he knew, the more he was unhappy. For in much wisdom is much vexation. Chapter 1, verse 18. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more he knew, the more he worried. The more he was aware of the brokenness of this world. Wisdom didn't provide solace. It just made him more vexed, more concerned, more aware. Wisdom itself, this sort of wisdom, did not provide answers. Folly wasn't any better, though. He tried folly. Chapter 2, verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And he says, but behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? Laughter had no answer. And a life committed to just laughter doesn't make sense. Pleasure, what use ultimately was it? He didn't find an answer there. He sought to cheer his body with wine, still guiding himself in wisdom, laying hold of folly so he might see what was good. And it was elusive, it was empty unsatisfying. These things did not work. Folly and pleasure did not provide satisfaction and stability. This is important to understand. Because this is what we do. In the uncertainty of life, in the struggles of life, as we face things, as we are tried, as we are stretched, as we go through things like pandemics or other things, We can find our heart looking for something to stand on. To look to wisdom. If I can just be smart enough and get it right, I can stand on that and have some stability. Or, often, commonly, we pursue folly. 
That's what explains what goes on in, in our lives and around us. Things like substance abuse. What's going on there? It's the pursuit of something satisfying and stable in folly. Sexual addictions, promiscuity, codependence, impulse buying, and all these behaviors are all a mad dash for meaning in an uncertain world. This is a reality that is, is growing more and more in our culture as well as it becomes more post-Christian. Some of the stats there, I think I have a graph to put up. Some of the stats, uh, up to 20% of those over the age of 12 will struggle with alcohol or drug abuse in their life. 20% of the adult population, basically. 16% of the population struggles with sex addiction. Among young people, suicides and substance abuse deaths have tripled in basically the past one generation. Tripled deaths from overdoses and suicide. Most likely because I think the younger generations feel this, feel the, the, the emptiness of life in our fractured, divided, and lonely society. These are the realities. This is what goes on as people pursue folly, thinking maybe folly will work. Maybe, maybe heroin will help me find something worth living for. And yet, it destroys us. Folly is no answer for the brokenness we all feel. It is not a re an answer. Folly destroys. The preacher actually says that it, it's not that wisdom and folly are equal. They, there's not ultimate answers in human wisdom and folly. But there is a difference. There is a, a, there is a difference in reality and experience between the two. So he goes on in uh, chapter 2, verse 12. So it says, I... Um, uh, verse 13, actually, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. So there's a difference there. There is a, a tendency here, of course, if you walk in wisdom, you're going to tend to be successful. If you walk in folly, you're going to be guaranteed not to be successful. So that's important to get as he's, he's saying this. He's not saying they're completely equal. But if you're looking for Stability and satisfaction. You're not going to be able to keep it by using human wisdom or pursuing pleasure. He goes on talking about that. Um, he, he talks about the reality, though, that we all die. And this is part of what he's getting at. Like that, You would think that if you walk in wisdom and do what's right, that somehow you could avoid this fate. But this fate awaits everybody. The wise person and the foolish person. He says, I perceive that the same event happens to all of them. Verse 14 of chapter 2. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. This is the reality. You might be wise. You might experience fruitfulness. But... After a generation or two, no one's going to know that you were alive and did these things. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated life, he says, because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and a striving after wind. Now, lest you be discouraged in this, recognize what the preacher is doing. He's poking you to say, don't be so confident of your ability to apply Proverbs and watch it happen. 
Don't be so confident of your, of your goals being realized. Understand it's a broken world. Be certain of uncertainty. Don't hang your hat on it. Don't be surprised. Don't deceive yourself thinking if I could just be smart enough or rich enough or successful enough or competent enough, I can beat this thing. Ecclesiastes says it doesn't work. At least not that way. Be certain of uncertainty in pursuing wisdom and folly. And be certain of uncertainty in your accomplishments and work. The next point. He talks about his life and and what he was able to accomplish in verse 4 of chapter 2 and following. Right, He lists these things out. Look at the stuff that he did. Great works, houses, vineyards, gardens, parks, fruit trees, pools, Male and female slaves. He owned people, actually. Um, He had possessions, herds and flocks, silver and gold, singers, concubines. Solomon had many, many wives. He had all these things. He became great and surpassed all who were before him in Jerusalem. And his wisdom remained. He he said, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I, I saw something and I got it. I kept my heart from no pleasure. This is actually eerily like what Eve does, right? Eve sees the forbidden fruit. It looks good to her eyes, and so she gives it to herself. That's part of what's going on here. There's connections here. So he thought, maybe I'll just go this way. Get everything that I want. I'll try. I'll work hard, and I'll make all these things. He has it all. It's amazing what, what he has here. Have you guys ever... Uh, Done, heard the icebreaker question, if you had a million dollars, what would you do if you had a million dollars? You ever hear that one? Um, it should be probably nowadays, if you had a billion dollars, what would you do? Um, what would you do with a billion dollars? Um, what would you really do? What would you want to get? And if you look at people who get a billion dollars suddenly through the lottery, they, they tend to do things like this. They, they, they purchase the things they have always wanted. Often it's their pleasures. A track record of lottery winners is not so good. Some of them do okay. But this guy, the preacher here, actually has won the lottery, basically. He has the resources as, as king and as a great king. He has billions of dollars. And he can get all he wants. Imagine that. Imagine having those resources. You could get anything you want. That was his experience. He could get whatever he wants. He could build whatever. He could do it. He could do you know, good labor. He could pursue pleasure. So pleasure... Pleasure and wisdom and folly, those things were all his choice. He had the resources. He had it all. He had all that the world might offer, both good and not so good. But what was the end result for him? What was it? What did it amount to? Nothing. A vapor chasing after the wind. Nothing to bank on. Money, sex, and power were ultimately meaningless Meaningless in and of themselves. And the poor man who, has, who does no money and the rich man who has billions of dollars, they all end up the same. They all die. They all live their short life and die. The famous woman and the unknown woman all live a short life and then move on. Let pass on. This world only offers the certainty of uncertainty no matter who you are, no matter what resources you have. This is this preacher's refrain again and again. 
All these things, all this work, all the blood, sweat, and tears for an enduring legacy do not guarantee an enduring legacy. And isn't history full of this reality? We just have to look at history. We can look at people we know. We can look at great people in history. I was just reading this week about Charlemagne. Um, Emperor Charlemagne lived around the year 800. Fantastic story. Um, he was a, a great man. He ruled over uh, portions of modern France, but he united them all and then added to them basically uh, a territory that went from Spain to Poland to Italy. He was the first great emperor of Europe. Uh, the first person to rule so much territory since the Romans had withdrawn. Um, he brought Christianity to much of Europe. He made reforms in education that are amazing, actually. I think he would have led Europe out of what we call the Dark Ages had he continued to reign uh, and had his sons and grandsons followed in his footsteps. Would have led Europe out of the Dark Ages into an earlier Renaissance Reformation. Um, theologically, too, he, I mean, he brought in some... some rock-solid, relatively speaking, teachers to his schools. Tremendous. If you read the story, like, wow, imagine if things had kind of changed. But his sons and grandsons did not and were not able to maintain what he had started. And Europe would be in the dark another 700 years. I can tell you other stories, too, like that. Great people, great influence in their lifetime, die an early death. And it seems that nothing is left of their legacy. This is the reality that we live in. And now if Toby could come up and we would transition, that's all I have to say today. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Ecclesiastes can feel bleak at times, right? I mean, we, it, 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 we don't want to see these things. We don't want to face these things. We, we like to camp out in the you know, Psalm 1 promises and live for that and and then just kind of forget about those exceptions, you know? These are just the exceptions, whatever. We'll deal with them when they happen. Or we'll use a theological truth just to kind of coat over it and feel better about it. But Ecclesiastes doesn't let us do that. And that's not, it's not the response God wants. We have to hear that because Ecclesiastes is in, is in the Bible, it's a message from God asking us to reconsider how we deal with the exceptions. And merely glossing them over, hiding them in a corner, is not what we're called to do. We're, we're called to put them out here right front and center. Be raw and honest about these realities. Don't try to move on. Face the reality. Deal with all of its hard aspects, all of its ugliness. But then take the truths in Ecclesiastes and the truths in the rest of Scripture and bring them to bear on these things realities. And so Ecclesiastes does that. So we'll continue. There is certainty among uncertainty. And there are important truths here for, for how to live amidst uncertainty. And one of the things that we see right here in, in this passage in verse 24 of chapter 2 is some certainty amidst the uncertainty to grab a hold of. And he says, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil this also I saw is from the hand of God. There is this reality that, that there are these blessings in life. Even though there's all this uncertainty, even though these exceptions continue to happen, there's real certainty of God's goodness in the midst of it. 
And these truths here, I think, are, are meant to slow us down and get our eyes maybe just from fixating on our goal that we think we must accomplish to appreciate God's goodness along the way. As I've said before, to stop and smell the roses along the way. Because the roses are from God. They're from the hand of God. And they're meant for your good. They're meant to be certainties amidst life's uncertainties. That's important for us to understand. Now, you know, let's not take this too far in another direction to understand there's a greater context here in Ecclesiastes and elsewhere. Not that goals are bad. We are to seek first the kingdom of God, right? That's a goal. Seek first the kingdom of God. We spent four weeks on the kingdom. We shouldn't lessen our desire and our prayer and our expectation of the kingdom advancing. But until Christ returns, it will always be qualified by Ecclesiastes. And so we seek first the kingdom. And we learn from Ecclesiastes that that not only includes seeing the nations come to Christ, but also smelling the roses along the way. The kingdom of God, God's reign, is to give us good things to enjoy. That's what's going on here. And again, the connection to Genesis is there. Because God made everything in the six days, rested on the seventh, put us, mankind, over it all. But as He made everything, He called everything good. It was good. And we were meant to reign under Him under a Sabbath rest where we enjoyed the good. Everything He created is good and meant to be used in that way. And so even though there's a fall, even though things have been corrupted and cursed, there remains an aspect of the goodness of God in creation. And so what Ecclesiastes is saying is is that, yeah, reading Genesis 1-3, to understand it's cursed, understand there's frustration, but that goodness of creation is still there. And part of how you deal with the reality of uncertainty is the, the certainty of His goodness still there. That's from Him for you to enjoy. Food, drink, good work, good friends are part of how you worship God. I think this is an important corrective, at least for me, but for us as American Christians, because we tend to be so driven. And then when the goal doesn't get realized, we fall apart. We have nothing else going on in our life besides that goal that we're driven by. We don't have the enjoyment. We've not built up a habit of enjoying and resting one in seven, of getting with friends. As I'm going through this, I'm realizing I need to build better here personally. And I think as a church, though I think we do very well, but we need to build this way. We need to build relationally so that we enjoy one another. We walk through life together. It's not all about the goal. But the the journey along the way where we enjoy things and are in each other's lives as friends. And then welcome the world into that too. And we demonstrate the truth of Ecclesiastes here. There are blessings from God that are part of the certainty amidst uncertainty. And that, maybe that, that's your one application from this whole sermon series until June, and that would be wonderful. A wonderful one point to apply to our lives. I know for me, it's something I'm considering. In this, this same section in Ecclesiastes as well, the preacher tells us that, that there's this aspect of God blessing. The, those that please the Lord, those that are in His favor, those that Believe Him and follow Him. He's given this gift of wisdom and knowledge and joy. 
And so he's at work, even in this uncertainty, granting the, the gifts of wisdom and knowledge and the joy that comes along. And he does bring blessing in that. And then he does also tend to work in ways that those that don't look to him, their gathering, their busyness is vanity. Vanity for them. And they'll tend to pass it on to somebody who will make good use of it. So it's not denying that. That's important to see. It's a qualifier of the qualifier, right? That's what's going on here. So wisdom does have a reward. It's a blessing from God. It's an active gift of God. And knowledge and joy. One other thing, I want, other connection I want to make before we, I conclude. It's not here immediately in, in Ecclesiastes, though chapter 12 talks about judgment. But it is in Genesis 3. So Genesis 1-3 to speaks of creation. Genesis 3 is about the fall and the curse. But right in the midst of describing the curse and all the brokenness of this age, God says something very profound actually to the serpent. Genesis 3.15 As the serpent is cursed, he is, he is the representative, the incarnation of Satan in the story. He says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Theologians and Bible scholars recognize this as the first gospel promise in Scripture. Because the ultimate offspring, the ultimate descendant of the woman is the ultimate man, the second Adam, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the God-man. And He bruised the head, crushed the head of the serpent, and the serpent bruised His heel. For He went to the cross to bear the consequences of the curse of the fall, to bear our sins, to receive all the results of our sin on Himself as He was crucified, as He bore the holy wrath, the justice of God. He was crushed for our iniquities. He took on Himself what we deserve to pay. In our sin and rebellion, we deserve to live in such a broken world and receive all the consequences of, of our sin. And yet Jesus took it on Himself. Wonderful promise in the midst of the curse. God in His character, His mercy, His love for us does not leave us alone amidst the curse, but gives us a promise of relief, of a certain hope in Jesus who died, who was crushed for our sins and rose again victorious over sin and death. He rose again on the third day with a new body, a new creation body, a body not affected by the fall in any way, but a victorious body and victorious over sin and death. He represents new creation. He represents what awaits us. He represents the certainty of new creation, the certainty of our hope. And He is offered to any and all who will trust Him. So how do we live in this world of uncertainty? In certain hope in Jesus Christ in His death and resurrection, and what we have in Him. We live in this uncertainty with the certainty of God's blessings along the way that are intended for us in His goodness. We live with the certainty of Christ crucified and risen, and our sure hope 
of rescue, and of power in this life of uncertainty. Because with Christ comes all these things. Because He turns this broken world around and now uses it as an instrument for our sanctification. All things work for our good. He sustains us in the uncertainty, in the futility. That's what Romans 8 is about. And I encourage you to be meditating on Romans 8 as we go through Ecclesiastes. We have all these promises, all these blessings in Christ that meet us amidst the uncertainty. Let me conclude with a story that I think illustrates it well. In the 1870s, Horatio Spafford was a successful Chicago lawyer and a close friend of D.L. Moody. He had invested heavily in real estate, but the Chicago fire of 1871 wiped out his holdings. His son had also died shortly before the disaster. Spafford and his wife and remaining children, his daughters, desperately needed a rest, so in 1873 they planned a trip to Europe with his wife and four daughters. And he hoped while he was in Great Britain to actually work with D.L. Moody and, and Iris Sankey with their evangelistic tour. He had last minute business so he couldn't go, but he sent his wife and four daughters ahead on a ship the Ville du Havre, promising to fall later in a few days. On November 22nd, that ship was struck by the English ship Lockerne, and it sank in 12 minutes. Several days later, the survivors landed in Wales, and Mrs. Spafford cabled her husband, Horatio, right away with the brief and sad message, saved alone. When Horatio made the ocean crossing to meet his grieving wife, he sailed near the place where his four daughters had sunk. And there in the midst of his sorrow, he wrote these unforgettable words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. Brothers and sisters, no matter what uncertainty may come in this life, you can be certain. For all who are here, you can be certain through simple faith in Christ, certain of the forgiveness and love of the suffering and victorious Savior and King Jesus, who counts all our tears and who will reward us with true and everlasting life. It is well with my soul. Because God has made it so in Christ. And God is with us in this journey. Let's pray.